Welcome to the Osprey podcast. How does one go about ascending entirely undocumented mountains, traveling through challenging environments like those you can find in the likes of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Nepal? Well, in this episode, we're hoping to answer that very question with the help of Osprey athlete, Christoph Netakoven. Explorer and mountaineer with a series of first ascents to his name in just such areas, Christoph is more than qualified to speak on the subject. So let's get straight into it. I'm your host, Marcus Brown, and this is the Osprey Podcast. Christoph, thanks for coming on. How's it going, mate? Very good. Thank you for having me, Mark. Nice to meet you. How's uh, lockdown for you? You're, where are you based? Um, yeah, I'm in North Rhine-Westphalia here in Germany, so the law wasn't that strict. You could always go out and uh, you just couldn't meet in groups. So I think it, it was not too difficult. And it depends on how you approach the situation. Um, I think the world slowed down a little bit and I actually could do things normally I don't have time for. So I tried to make the best out of it. That's it. That's it. So let's get straight into the epic adventures because I'm excited to get started on these. There's a lot to cover. <laughs> um, let's start off with the Afghanistan expedition, which I, I believe was in 2012. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, that's true. So that was traversing the Wakhan corridor and then climbing an unnamed peak. Tell us a little bit about that trip. What took you there? Well, it, it, it started already a year before. We were climbing in Shimshal in Pakistan, it's on the southern border of this Wakhan corridor. And we were always talking about Afghanistan. And um, I think there are areas that are not so so dangerous or what you generally hear in the in the mainstream media so if you get some some more detailed information you find quite some beautiful areas so for the next year we wanted to go there but still our entry uh, had to go via Tajikistan because we had another guy on the team actually a paraglider Will he wanted to come from uh, from Kabul but uh, in between there are some areas where you can get some trouble and exactly this happened there was kind of a riot and so we couldn't get through anymore so we entered mm. uh, right from the north, straight into the uh, Wahan Corridor, and this is one of the most uh, peaceful areas you can imagine. I mean, there's never been any warfare, yeah? not during Russian invasion, not during the civil war um, in Afghanistan. It, it's, it's just a very peaceful area with different people. In the lower areas, you have settlements, and on the high plateau, there are nomads living the ho- all year round, uh, about 4,000 meters. And um, while you arrive there, and you can't be more different. You arrive there as an alien, but wh- how do those people react? They are so hospitable. They, they invite you. They, they cook uh, uh, bread for you. They give you a place to sleep. And um, I don't know, it was really amazing to, to meet those people and to see how they live. It was wonderful. And further down, of course, the further you get into the corridor, uh, the more mo- mountains you see which are unclimbed. Because um, um, with the Russian invasion in the 70s, all climbing stopped. And since then, there were not much going on anymore. So um, the climbers, of course, are also lazy people. They, they go for the first pe- peaks they can find, but they didn't have time to, to get any further into it. So um, there was an Italian guy actually coming in. Uh, anyway, there's a lot of unclimbed stuff to do, and that's really beautiful. That's what, uh, what we really love, to, to see new areas. Sure. So on that note, how did you choose a peak to climb? Because like, is there much, if they're unnamed, is there much information about each one 
uh, that's really hard to get. So you have to do really a lot of research. And those researches yeah. start with the, 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 the very first people who go there and you, you try to find, sometimes you don't find it online. You know, all the new stuff gets, gets printed online. But if you need expedition from the 60s, 70s, what did they do? You really have to find their books and reports and paper. And that is, that is kind of difficult. So you have to do quite a, uh, quite a lot of research to find out uh, what has been done and what has not been done. And there, actually there was also a Polish group before us um, on the beginning of the Wachan Corridor, they did quite some peaks, and you have to put all those informations together to be sure that um, those peaks are unclimbed. And another thing is, um, we only had like maps from the Russian military, like from the 60s. Those are the only maps and, and the best maps you can find. But Which um, ones, sorry? Uh, from the Russian, those are old Russian military maps from the 60s. Oh, wow. So those are the only maps you have. But by coincidence, um, I found a book from a German and a French professor. They went in there in the 70s. One was actually looking for animals and plants, and the other one was for the language there. But what they did is they wrote everything down the people told them, and they drew a very simple map, but with the names of every little side valley. So by finding this map from the 70s again, you could talk to the people and know exactly, you know, we want to go to El Gaeli. Normally, you, you always get, get into trouble. You, you, you agree on the target and the people say, well, here is a target. Most names mean like a, a meadow for sheep or anyway. So whenever there's sheep, they say, okay, this is it. Here you have to go. And you have to say, no, no, we have to go further. And with this old map, we had all, all names and all details. It was uh, really nice. So one thing I was really wondering was how did you manage weather? Because that's always something that's key in mountaineering. Yeah. Were you, how were you tracking the weather and like, you know, what, how high was the summit? Afghanistan, actually, there is a little palm here. It's not so high. Ours was uh, 5,700 okay. meters. So they are below 6,000 meters. So it's not that you, right. that you like, I don't know, if you go for 8,000 meter peaks, you have like different camps or high altitude camps. And here you had mm. a, uh, um, like an advanced base camp, and then you go for the summit. Uh, so you don't mm. spend so many days there. But in fact, we didn't have uh, any weather information there. Um, not at you, all. You have to choose the right time, and you have the you need the right feeling for this. There are other mountains and other areas where you can actually get uh, um, um, uh, weather forecast. You can get that in some areas, but not for Afghanistan. You can forget that. So um, right. yeah, you need you need some good luck with it. Wow. So you you were literally just going up on the hunch that the weather seemed good and it didn't look like there was anything bad coming in. So you just went for it. Exactly. And that's how it, how it was, that's actually. Amazing. It was a, the clearest sky we, we had. So when we arrived, there was a snowstorm. But after that, it was really, really beautiful. So while I was watching the film, which is really, really interesting to watch because it's just this extraordinary footage of this like really sort of desolate landscape with these icy rivers and like river crossings and stuff. It just looks amazing. Um, you mentioned at the end of it that you'd had, I think you might've mentioned this just now that you had issues at the border uh, on the way out Yeah, and that you had to change plan. Could you explain what that was? Oh yeah. That was, that was really surprising because uh, you know, when we went or when I tell people, Hey, I go to Afghanistan, but, Oh, Afghanistan is dangerous. Be careful. No, Afghanistan, there was no problem at all. It was actually in Tajikistan. Tajikistan, um, after they got free from, from Russia, they, they had some quarrels, some bloody days, but that was all gone. And it's said to be very peaceful. 
But what happened exactly in that time that our border crossing at Horok, um, Ishkashim, those southern places, they had a, a kind of a riot. It was um, actually, um, how to explain? You have border troops, which are from the local people. And then you have a secret service and other military. And, well, another negative thing is that this border is also used for, let's say, trafficking of some goods, like you can imagine. And there was a quarrel, and um, the, the governmental guy, the Secret Service guy, got killed on the street. And the government used this situation to send military to get rid of the so-called warlords. It always depends on which side you believe. For the locals, those warlords are like heroes. For the government, those warlords are like um, drug dealers. The truth might be always in between. So they send troops down, helicopters, tanks, and everything, and there was really a little war going on. And again, depending on which source you believe, 40 to 200 people died within a couple of days. And as a result of that, the border was closed. So we were, we were in Afghanistan, and everything was peaceful in Afghanistan. We just couldn't get out. The, the border was closed. That was our problem. And actually, we, this news arrived us when we were still on the climb. Um, actually, back in base camp, a friend sent us this message by a satellite phone. And then we thought, okay, what to do? And he said, you have to get out, you have to get out. Uh, first, we went down to the nomads again and enjoyed uh, the final days with a nice goat. And we want to say thank you to the locals. But then we had to rush to the border. And we spent a couple of days on the border trying to get out. We called then also um, the different embassies. And the funny thing is, for example, the German embassy in Tajikistan, when we called them, they didn't know anything about this. Then we called the embassy in Afghanistan, and they sounded more like they want to send like special forces to get us out, which was totally not necessary. So we were kind of nervous. But after three more days trying, finally, we got over the border. And that was uh, thankful because Gosha know this guy, and I think they, they drank some vodka uh, when we arrived before. So they managed uh, to, to, to get us out without um, any problems. And then we just had to get out of uh, Tajikistan. And, um, and you could see all the military. And they, all, they, they just wanted to get rid of the tourists. They just wanted to push us out. So getting out then was no problem. They kicked us out more or less. But they were not letting anybody in anymore because they didn't want any witnesses or footage uh, getting to the press or something like that. So yes, uh, saying uh, uh, this trip was peaceful, you, of course you have to mention that um, you never know. Always, There's always something uh, surprisingly that can happen and you, you have to be careful. Wow. You just mentioned that you, you had some goat on the final day. Yeah. Um, what, what was the food like there? Well, the food normally is, is very, very simple. I mean, you have to imagine those people live all year above 4,000 meters. The highest settlement in Europe that is permanently inhabited is maybe 2,100 meters. And there in, in, in Afghanistan, they live in their yurts. Yurts is like a, a little better tent, but nothing more than a tent. Also in winter on 4,000 meters. It's a very tough life. You can't do agriculture. You can, you, they only live by, by the animals. So everything you cannot produce yourself you have to get with the animals or products of the animal. That's a fur, that's uh, cheese, that's milk, or the animal or the meat. But then you have to walk for five days to go to the lower settlements where farming is possible. 
With those people, you have to trade your goods that you produced and bring it up for five days. And um, so they're like, you know, if you want to make a tea, yeah, you have to walk five days, trade for the tea, trade for the sugar, trade for the salt and come back. If you want to bake bread, you cannot produce it yourself. You have to go for five days. So it's really a tough life. So food is very simple. But as it is always in high altitude, uh, what they need is like they need energy. So usually like if you drink a tea, it's a, it's a yak butter tea. They take like um, yak butter and salt and put it into, into tea. So it's, um, but it's, it's exactly what people need on this altitude, right? You need the salt, you need the mm. energy. And taste comes second, right? First, you have to survive somehow. And the same with the food. They, they eat mostly like uh, uh, animal uh, products or meat or anything. So, um, but also as a, as a celebration for the soul team and because also they let us live with, with them and they were so hospitable, we bought like a sheep from them and let them prepare the sheep more or less for themselves so um, that both of us have something. They have the money and finally also uh, the food. And it was mm. a very nice experience. It was beautiful. Amazing. What do you feel you've learned from spending time in these, you know, cultures that are so far removed from our own? I think uh, it's it's humility. It's like um, you you they they put you down to earth. You know those people um, live such a hard life, but they are let's say they are they are celebrating like every day they have. It's much more intense and it's very very positive thinking. Um, like if you think at home, you know you have three days of rain and people are unhappy. Yeah, but but over there. <laughs> You, you have a fight for survival every day. And, and on the other hand, then they enjoy what they have, even if it is so little. And here you would say they're very poor. But it's actually us that we live in such a surplus. You have too much of everything over here. And what you learn there is just um, to, to be thankful for all this. And like each, each expedition brings me down to earth again. And I come back and, and I see how wonderful and how perfect everything here is. Yeah, that um, you have the safety, you have the food, you have you have the healthcare, you have all those all those things that could be like lethal in those countries. If if somebody of those nomads uh, would have a bad um, disease or anything, again they have to walk or be carried for five days to get to a road. You don't get to a doctor, but you find a road. Then you have to pay a car and drive for two days. Then hopefully there is a doctor, and then you still have to pay for the doctor. So um, if you have something urgent, it's too late. And that is what, right. what I learned from those tours. It's just, um, you know, just to, to, to embrace what, what you have and how, how, how beautiful everything is, actually, and how lucky we are to live here. Hmm. A new perspective on, uh, on our own world then. So tell me, what was the best and worst moment of that particular trip? The best and the worst moment. Well, the best is was like living with those nomads, even though it was mm. just for a short trip. I think that uh, impressed me most. How long were you staying with them? Ah, well, like those five days walking, you come from uh, there are different settlements of them. So like um, nearly each day of those last days, and you, when you're on the high altitude, you come to another family, and then you have to change also. The animals and everything because that um, every group of people has something from from us as tourists and also they have their grazing ground so you have to respect that you always have to change animals for each uh, group and um, okay. 
And then we had, of course, our climbing days. But again, uh, all together, it was like a, a week approach, a week return. And then we have two weeks for the mountain. So you can say like two weeks at the end for those people. Um, but it was really, the, this hospitality uh, was amazing. They really um, offered us everything and um, it was, they were so open. Yeah, You, you, could, you mm. could see and participate and, and you, you see how they produce their goods, so they make the cheese. You can, you can ride the horses and stuff. It was really, really nice. Amazing. The other thing, of course, was the climbing itself, which was uh, not so demanding. It was not a difficult climb, but it's a beautiful area. And then you see mm. all the other peaks where you still have a lot of targets. And the worst, of course, or let's say that the problem was um, this, this border thing that we couldn't get out. And maybe also in the beginning yeah. that one team member couldn't get to us because um, he couldn't get out of, of, of Kabul through the area. That was uh, not so good, of course. What you, 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 I found a quote um, where you said that your expedition targets have to include two things, unclimbed peaks and fascinating culture. What do you think drives the obsession with climbing the unclimbed? Well, I think it's like the purest adventure that you can have because if you go somewhere where nobody has been before, then you lack any information. You don't know anything. If you go climbing in the Alps, for example, you can climb very hard routes, but you find every detail already. You can read guidebooks, you can search the internet, and they tell you every, every position, every situation. And when you go for something like this, if you go for untouched, uh, maybe nameless and unplanned peaks, then you know nothing. And you have to accept uh, that the chances to fail are higher than the chances to succeed. And you don't even, sometimes you don't even have photos of it. You can only use Google Earth. And Google Earth, the satellites are very approximative. So you, you, you try to find a route on the mountain, but ah, the mountain looks different in reality than what Google Earth can show you. And I think um, it's this unknown and unexpected that gives me the, the biggest adventure. Because if I, if I would know everything in advance and if I would know people went up there already, they went this way, then actually I don't have to go there anymore because I know it's possible. And I want to find something new. I think that is my idea of, of adventure. So it's not to do with recognition, but or, or you know doing something that's more likely to get noticed, rather than it is just about making something for yourself and and achieving something entirely on your own. Yeah. Well, first of all, that's really it's not, cool. It's not that we climb the hardest route, so so nobody would care yeah. about about this anyways. Um, we do report about if you do new stuff, uh, there are reports in all those journals, so that also the next person knows what has been done and what not. Because this is a, the information I also rely on. I need to find all the reports of people who went there before so that I can be sure that it's unclimbed. But, um, mm. well, in the end, when it comes to the end, it's just the pure fun for yourself. That's why you do it. So you've spent a lot of time in the Karakoram, which is a, a mountain range in Pakistan. True. Um, what is it that keeps taking you back there? Well, first of all, um, the mountain range itself. I think it's it, it has one of the some of the wildest mountains you can imagine, and it has also still so much un, unclimbed peaks. And um, I think you can find everything there. And um, additionally to this, also the, the the again the people and the cultures. Even if you drive the Karakoram Highway up, there are many side valleys, and and nearly every side valley. There are different tribes, even with different languages, 
Even if you stand in Hunza mm. and you look opposite to the main river, there's a Naga people. They speak a different language again. And then uh, it's, it's, it's not that it's very new. It's like a, you find proof of people of 5,000 years ago. It's like a melting pot of all the cultures it went through. So you find Buddhists. How, how do you handle, um, I'm just going to pause you for a sec. How do you handle the, those language barriers? Because if you're going from tribe to tribe and, and every small village has its own language, you can't, surely you don't have a translator for everyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. First of all, you can't learn all those languages. You can't speak them anyway, so that's no chance. My only possibility is to speak English. So you have to find a guy that also speaks English, which is not common for everybody. Um, and then uh, hopefully it's a guy who has been to many of those valleys or who can somehow uh, talk uh, talk to them. So, But actually, after, when you've been there a couple of times and years and you get to know the right people and you get to know the people in each valleys and now you have an infrastructure, I would just have to call some friends and say, okay, tomorrow we come with five guys, we have so much luggage, you pick us up from the airport, we drive up Karakoram Highway, then we go there and this and that. And depending on which valley you go, you, you just pick up uh, other guys because you, you will need all the porters finally to get to your target. So you always rely on local people somehow. And But again, this is what I like because you want to learn from those people and cultures. Again, it's part, part of, of, of my entertainment, of my fun in it to, um, to be with the locals and, and to, to go through the last villages and, and meet the people and get to know how they live. And, and again, it's, it's such a, a cultural uh, melting pot there. It's also, also different religions, yeah. They are um, Ismaili people, which are very uh, liberal Shia people. Then you got valleys where they are Sunni people. Then if you go to the Afghan border, you find even like Kalasha people, they believe in, in, a, in a whole pantheon of gods. They even, even though everything is a more Islamic country, um, the Kalasha, they, they, they make their own wine and they... Um, they make their own liquor, and the society is totally different. Um, even the Hunza make their own liquor. And when I talk to them, I say, how come? Normally it's forbidden. And then they say, ah, oh, it's what our grand-grandfathers already did. We did this before there was Islam, so it's part of our tradition. So we have to keep our tradition alive. And this way you get to know so much. And um, I don't know, those are, it's very inspiring just, just being with those people. Is every trip really intense because i imagine the first time you went out there it must have been quite a um quite an intense experience have you found you mentioned that you've now you've built up this network and you know a lot of people out there do you find that it's quite a relaxed trip now when you go or is it still always like this this big adventurous feeling that you get well of course you you get you get, you get used to many things in your life but yeah. you always choose new targets right so whenever I find a new target in a new area and maybe different uh, tribes and then different peaks, it's always a new adventure. And it always depends on, you know, sometimes uh, uh, the roads are so bad, you, you, you don't get through like the Shimshal road or so. There's always some new problems to solve. Uh, no, you can go there, you can travel there for 100 years and you would still be surprised by some things. And the other thing is, and that depends on yourself, what do you choose for next target? Of course, you want to find something that is a little bit a step further uh, concerning the climbing. Like you want maybe another more challenging peak. What do you think is challenging for you? Or you want a new area where you haven't been before, or before you thought, ah, let's, let's start with, a, with another area first before we go there. We have time in the future. Um, so for me, I think 
it's always like 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 a kid in the candy shop. It's always um, it's hmm. always an adventure to me to just get to the next area and do something new. So, of all of the trips you've done, here's a good question for you: When have you been at your most scared? Most scared, huh? Most scared, most scared. Yeah, it depends. I mean, um, sometimes, also before expedition, sometimes I traveled on my own into those, like Pakistan, I went on my own there first. And you don't have any idea how that runs. And then you hear a lot of stories. And yeah. you have to be honest that there are some areas which are difficult. There were cases even on the along the Karakoram Highway around Shilas where people stopped buses, took all the people out. They separated them according to religion, Shia, Sunni, and they killed all Shia people. They burned the buses wow. afterwards, and those buses were still on the road uh, for a couple of years. So each time you drive by there, you remember what can happen. Mm. So those are things, of course, um, that you, you cannot predict and that, um, that give you quite some worries. Um, those are the things on the mountains, of course, if something happens, like, like you have a stupid crevasse fall or some avalanches or stuff, that is what, what scares you, of course, what you want to avoid. And yeah, stuff like that. Tell us about the China trip. The Shagsgam Valley. Shagsgam River. Yeah. yeah, it's a, it's a very special area. Um, like we were climbing for several expeditions in the Shimshal area, which is the next closest to this border, to this Shaksgam uh, um, Valley. And when you stand on, on the summit there and you look north, you see the next mountain range far in the distance. And I saw some peaks that were really, really amazing. But I had no idea what, what area that is. So I started researching, looking, and I found out, okay, it's a Shaksgam Valley. It's a border valley between North Pakistan and China. And this mountain range, it's very hard to get to because it's in Xinjiang. Xinjiang, you need a lot of permits. The Chinese don't really want many tourists in this border area. It's, it's more or less locked up. It's difficult to get in and you really depend on the mood of the people who give out the permits. I know people who tried it several times and they never got in. And then um, another uh, thing that made me want to go there even more was I was at a speech of Kurt Dienberger. It's a famous climber, very old guy, but he summited like two eight-thousanders for first ascents. And this guy has seen everything on the world. And in this speech, he's around 90 years old now, but he said, with all his knowledge, he said, the Shagsgam Valley, I really want to see again. And as 90-year-old and having seen everything else, he said, I still have a barrel of equipment there. I would really love to go back. Of course, with his age, he will never do that. But if somebody like that is, is so amazed by a place, it must be something special. And then by coincidence, actually, I got into contact with Bruce Normand, and he was planning an expedition there. So then we teamed up to get in there. And yeah, that was it. The approach again was from Kyrgyzstan via Kashgar, and then you have to go um, down Xinjiang province and then into this border area. And it's it's so special because you have the north faces of, of K2 and the Gashabrums and those 8,000ers. But on the other side of the valley, nearly, nearly every peak is unclimbed. There are really only a few expeditions. And how to get on, on information is like um, um, you read old books. There was this English explorer, a young husband going 1890. He was going through there. And he was already saying that 
you have to get out of the Shaksgam Valley by August because the summer temperatures make those huge mountain glaciers yeah, all melt into the Shaksgam Valley. And even though it's a very wide valley, it's, it, it turns into a, a huge river and you, you won't get through there anymore. So you have to go there a little bit earlier. There were all the information that we could get. So Shaksgam is very special, very hard to get to um, on one hand. So it should have been a great adventure. But in the end, it turned out uh, to be actually one of my worst um, experiences because we lost two friends in the Shaksgam Valley. And um, yeah, we couldn't do anything. So that was, I think that was my worst experience I ever had. What went wrong then? Well, um, we were three sub teams with three different targets. We had the same base camp. It is a Dubin Kangri range. There are two peaks that nearly reach 7,000 meters and then some 6,000 meter peaks in between. And our Slovenian friends, Alej Holk and Peter Mesner, um, they wanted to go to Dubin Kangri too. And Bruce Normand uh, went to Dubin Kangri 1. And we had uh, a simple small 6,000. So our timing was also reduced to four weeks where the others stayed six weeks. But the approach was different. From base camp, you move into different valleys. So everybody was busy with his own climbing more or less. And uh, we, we left when the temperatures were rising and the two other teams, they stayed longer for their summer attempt. But the temperatures turned out to be too warm actually. And I just remember we we were back in Bishkek. We were actually sitting in a beer garden. It was 30 degrees. We were happy, a successful expedition. Um, you enjoy life the fullest. Yeah, you sit in the sun with an ice cold beer. And we thought, hey, we sent by a satellite phone a message to Alex. How are they doing? So we sent it and there was no reply. But we, we were not worried because we all had problems with the solar panels and we thought, okay, well, those guys, before we are kidding around here and wasting all the energy, they save the, the, the electricity for, for their summit day, or, you know, for, for the important messages, mm -hmm. if, if something happens. They will, they will send back or call us when we're back in Germany. No, there was nothing coming from them. And then we contacted Bruce and heard from our uh, contact person that contacts all three teams all the time that they didn't come back in time. They should have been back to base camp where Bruce was waiting and his team, and they didn't come. And in the meantime, I said that the temperatures went up already, so the water level was going high. And their approach was very difficult. You had to go through a slot canyon, you know. A slot. It's very, very thin down below, just a few meters, but very deep. And this huge glacier from a nearly 7,000-meter peak, all the water comes through this very, very thin um, uh, valley. So the, the level rose so high and the, 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 the water was so strong that even Bruce and nobody could get through there. It was just too dangerous. In the beginning, uh, Alej uh, showed us uh, photos. You had uh, also our approach. You had like ice bridges going over it and there was not much water. So you could, it, it was a very hard approach, but you could still get through there. But now with several meters high, new water coming down, it was impossible to get through. So uh, they had no chance to get there. Nobody could check what happened. And then you were in China. And in China, you don't have 
like in the Alps, you have the Riga, you have the helicopter, you can you have rescue mm. to every peak. They can even get you out of any wall if you get into trouble. But then China, you don't have nothing like that. Well, then, luckily, the military did send a helicopter. But even that helicopter had problems to get over this uh, mountain ridge into the valley where they where they were in. So there was no no solution, no nothing. Nobody could get to them, and till today, nobody really knows what happened. It's just that, um, well, they all left behind uh, their wives and three children each. So that is um, from one day to another, their father, their husband just disappeared. You cannot say goodbye. You don't have a body. You can't. You know, there's nothing. It's just the person is just gone, and you don't know what happened. This is maybe the worst thing that can, can happen to you. You have no explanation or nothing. Also, uh, for the insurance, if you have no proof of death, if you have no body, if you have no photo, um, also your insurance won't help you, um, at least to pay. And for them, for the families, all the costs were going on, and, and, and it, was, it was really horrible. Does it ever make you question going on these sorts of adventures? when you know that tragedies like that can occur? Yeah, um, of course. Of course, you question it. And um, maybe with a sober mind for five minutes, you would say, I'll never go again. But um, then, I don't know, the longer I'm at home, the more I, I, I get this feeling to, to go on another tour. And... Um, and even then, the next year, I didn't go on expedition, and we, we donated our money, and also I tried to do as much uh, presentation as possible to collect money for the families and all that. And there was a time I wanted to take off and to think about all this. But to be honest, in the same year, I started planning again for the next tour. And that is also what a good friend of Alesh and, and Peter wrote um, in their tribute. They, they say... Um, and even if they would have known what will happen, they would have they would go again. So it's something that is deep inside of you, and you just you know you you just you just have to to go. It's, I was going to say that I think some some people it's it's just um, you know it's the same as any extreme sport really. You know they all come with their own set of risks that you're you're choosing to take or not take every time. Um, and I think some people, you know, if that's what you're built to do you know like that's what your heart is set on then you you do it don't you exactly um let's talk about fitness a little bit because i'm fascinated to know how you prepare your body for trips like this because it's got to take its toll like particularly with the with the challenges with food as well um how do you handle it well first of all i live i live more in the northwest of germany so we don't have any serious mountains over here i'm far away from the alps but what you do, um, especially for high altitude, uh, the basics are just endurance, 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 mm. endurance. That is a basic for everything. Because even um, if, if you do hard uh, climbing practice, if you don't have the endurance in the high altitude, you cannot reach the, the necessary level. So that is the base for everything. So what you do is you go running, you go cycling, you do everything like that. Then we have, of course, we have steep hills, we have... Uh, Wine, wine yards on nice valleys where you can go up and down, up and down, up and down the steepest hills and, and, and practice at least um, your endurance. And then for the climbing, 
Um, actually, what you need, of course, is more like to handle uh, ice tools and your crampons and everything. So you, you don't practice this in your climbing gym. Of course, the basics you would do, but um, then you would do dry tooling over here, for example. Actually, there is a, in one city we have a place where they where they screwed like uh, woods into it, so you can climb and do dry tooling in the woods. It, it comes close to ice, so that's how you prepare for that. It would be, and of course, whenever you have the chance, you, you try to get down to the Alps. Or in the winter, you need you need real ice climbing that you don't lose the feeling. You do this, but um, I also have to do a lot of work and stuff, so I don't have the same possibilities for training as, as my friends who live down in the Alps or some are even professional mountain guides you know their job is to guide people and to climb so uh, they have really really much better training uh, conditions or possibilities so when you say it's all about having good endurance what kind of things are you doing to build that endurance is it just really long slow runs and cycles and things like that that wouldn't be enough that of course is the, the, the basics for everything you need to do this all the time but then um you know you just getting to the mountain can be already challenging you know sometimes you have on the on the first or second day you have to get over high passes and sometimes you have like passless areas you know, because nobody is going there you have to find a way and you have to cross rivers and all that stuff and you have to carry your your, your loads and stuff so what i also do here is just pack my uh, my bag and then go on very long and steep hikes like you have to 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 get the, the steepness into it because your, your, your body, your muscles react differently than if I would just do my running, you know, I wouldn't be prepared. That's not enough. You have to do this as well. So you have to be pushing heavy weight uphill slowly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's part of the game. Yeah. Because this will wait for you when you come there and then you, you have to get yeah. through that. Yeah. It is a very specific form of exercise. I feel mountaineering. Um, I, I did a trip not too long ago, just up to Wales. Um, we did Snowdon uh, yeah. and I, I went with a friend who is, he's a bodybuilder. He's very strong. He's got good cardio. He's very fit, but he's a bodybuilder. He's really heavy. Yes. Uh, and whilst he's very used to doing specific movements and, you know, has a lot of explosive power, yeah. his ability to just move a lot of weight up a hill was pretty dreadful <laughs> and yeah. it, you know he found it really really hard even though he he is really strong and he is really fit um so it's it's interesting how it's, it's a different kind of strength because um mm. also his more muscles need more oxygen you have to support those muscles and it gets worse in high altitude because your body has already problem to to gain enough oxygen and the more muscles you need to support with oxygen the more difficult it will get so in the end, it's more like you can compare it more to a, like a marathon runner or so. Like the guys are rather skinny and you need a lot of endurance. Whereas like the bodybuilder, you know, they can push and pull 120 kilos and more. They're really strong guys. Mm. But it's more like doing something all day long, you know, 10, 20 hours mm. for a couple of days in high altitude and again and again and again. So um, it's, it's a totally different uh, training for it. Mm. What one exercise would you choose if you could only do one? Like like kind of exercise, then I would go with uh, endurance. That would be that is the basics for us because uh, I don't do like big wall climbing. I don't need to to climb overhanging rocks and stuff. I'm not the technical climber anyways. 
though some some of our team members are very strong climbers, and I'm certainly not. I'm more the guy with the idea and the planning. And um, or if I don't know if you go with uh, Nick Colton was uh, 2018 along, or Bruce Norman to start. Those are really serious climbers. I'm not much of that. So I would go with endurance. That is most important. To uh, but what if you if you're going to pick one exercise within endurance, what would that one thing be? Would it be walking with weight? I think yes. I think I would do that. I would go up the hills, but long, long terms yeah. and um, going very steep with weight. I think that would be. But then, of course, you have to be careful. Uh, going down goes heavily on your knees and stuff, so you have to really mm. get a feeling for it and. Uh, um, I'm also not getting any younger, so you have to train smarter and not stronger. But sure. uh, yes, so generally, longevity, right? Yeah, yeah. Generally, I would, I would, uh, I think I would choose that one. So, how do you get into? If you're sitting at home, you're in lockdown right now, and you're thinking, "God damn it, I want to go on an amazing adventure that <laughs> completely blows any other holiday." out of the water any holiday trip to a hotel in lanzarote (laughs) blow that out of the water go on a genuine hardcore adventure where would you suggest starting i I mean like how how to get the idea how to develop like how how do you start like you know not necessarily where do you want to go but say you decide you want to go to iran for example yeah how do you start planning that um, well, well, usually we, I start or we start with the, with the mountain targets and the cultural areas. Um, so for Iran, maybe you would be interested to go on the highest volcano of Asia to go to Damavant or something like this. And then um, yeah, you have to start collecting all information. I mean, it starts usually our areas are difficult areas, like sometimes uh, military areas, which are locked up. And so you have to look how, how are the rules in the country? What do I need for a permit? Uh, military permit, like Wachan Corridor, you had to register with the police, with the border troops, with the tourism uh, uh, ministry, and you needed like a whole bunch of papers. You have to get this into check first. And then, of course, you need infrastructure. And that is, in those very remote areas, difficult. Like uh, even in Pakistan or so, I started traveling myself first to get to know the people and how things run. Um, And from then on, uh, you develop your, your, your mountain target and all this, what you need for that. But I think first uh, you need to know all, all the rules and all the regulations and, and, mm. and ways to get in. And, and again, also like basic information, like I said, with the Shakskam Valley, when, when the water gets too high, the season is over. You have to know this. When is monsoon time? When, when you ask me about how do you judge the weather, sometimes we have no forecast, no nothing. So then you have to find the, the best timing. Um, those are, of course, very simple, simple things, but this is what you have to take care of first. And the other things, of course, then is the planning for the mountain, how to get there. First of all, finding the unclimbed mountain already is a, is a, is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Finding this appealing, this challenging, something that really, really grabs you. And, and you know, you, you dream of it at night and you think, I have to get there. You have to find a target like this. And then how to get there? Then what do you need? How will the climb be? What equipment do you need? Because on one hand, you have to go as light as possible to make expeditions as simple as possible. On the other hand, of course, you need all necessary equipment. You don't want to end up like sometimes we have even discussions about snowshoes for the approach. 
And some guy, even experienced guys, they sometimes say, oh, no, we don't need this. It will be like a warm season and so on. And then you get there and you have hip deep snow and, and you are totally finished <laughs> before you even uh, reach the foot of the mountain. <laughs> and those are like uh, little mistakes um, that you can make. And you really have to uh, keep all this in mind. How, are, how is the situation? What will you need? What will, what will be waiting there for you? Brilliant. So if you were going to say this is a great first place to go for your first big adventure, where would you suggest going? You know, um, for example, um, I rejected Nepal quite some time, even though I was going there. Uh, Nepal was kind of like um, the mainstream country where everybody goes for trekking or for first mm -hmm. mountaineering. And I thought it's not adventurous enough for me. But I found out that, you know, you find special areas nearly everywhere. Then you just go, for example, into the far west of Nepal, which is not so so uh, popular. And you find um, many unclimbed peaks, for example. So what I want to say is you can, you can find your adventure uh, all along the Himalaya range or in the Andes or wherever you want to go. There are many, many possibilities. And... Of course, countries like this, which have a big infrastructure, are maybe best for first-timers. But I think I started actually for first ascents. For first ascents, I did my first in, in Pakistan because it was, for me, the most interesting area. And, um, yeah, it's, it's not magic, you know. Everybody can do it. You just need to prepare for everything. It really depends what you're looking for. Before we wrap up, I'd like to get your lockdown recommends. So we're looking for one TV and film, one song and one other, which could be anything. Could be a podcast or a book or an app or an activity. Anything you want. Ah, well, um, what what I like, what is very entertaining, you can, you can watch nearly any Tarantino movie or... Um, okay, nice, yeah. Or um, I don't know what did I watch recently? Like Vice, the story of Cheney and 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 uh, Bush. There was uh, or like Wolf of Wall Street was very funny. That's kind of nice. stuff that, that entertains me a little bit. That's so me. funny. I was I was convinced you were going to go for like Into the Wild or something like that. But no, of course, Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> just a long time. Just a long time ago. Of course, that is a classic. Yes. Yes. Great film, isn't it? Okay, so we've got, uh, we'll, we'll say Wolf of Wall Street or um, <laughs> any Tarantino movie or Into the Wild, depending on your mood. Song, what are you going for? And the last song I heard was something from Slipstream. They make more more like relaxing, chilling music. You could uh, probably hear it in an elevator or something like that. It just can't <laughs> very much. And that is what I, what I was listening to yesterday evening. Nice. And then what's your other going to be then? Actually, um, now during Corona, um, there were many new things, like like all those beaches uh, uh, were not allowed anymore. You couldn't gather uh, people. So they all put this online. So you can check out from the different Alpine clubs, for example, also the uh, um, AC and the BMC, British uh, Mountaineering Council. I think they put quite some um, interesting things online. Um, uh, like what I saw recently was about Kanchenjunga and then many people get to speak uh, about it, about the experiences of, of, of a certain mountain. Or you even oh, cool. see like single uh, uh, presentations of expeditions. That's what I love to see. And you just check out um, uh, like on YouTube or wherever they put it, um, those channels of the, I don't know, German Alpine Club, uh, the 
Alpine Club, the British one, AC, or the BMC, uh, or the American Alpine Club, and they have quite some good program there. That's pretty cool. Well, I hope that's inspired you to start thinking about your next adventure. I know it certainly has done for me and hopefully given you a few practical tips on how to get the ball rolling too. Thanks to Christoph for joining us. Thanks to you for listening. I've been your host, Marcus Brown, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Osprey Podcast. Osprey Podcast.